try again. Torah Resource presents the Rob and Caleb Show. All aboard! And now, from two sides of the same state, here they are, Rob and Caleb. What up and shalom. Welcome to the Rob and Caleb Show. My name is Caleb Hag, and with me, as always... The man who is to this show as high tops are to Converse, Rob Van Hoff. What up, Rob? Hey, baby. <laughs> hey, nice shades. <laughs> oh, that's just a joke. Shalom. Uh, so Rob and I are extremely excited right now, and I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. Because tomorrow we jump on a plane and go down to the nice, sunny, 80-degree weather of San Diego for the ETS and SBO. 80? Meeting. 81. I, wow, that's cool. Well, I won't need my blanket. <laughs> yeah. But I will need my sunglasses. It is freezing in my office yeah. right now, and I turned I turned the heater off so that you couldn't hear it over the radio. And uh, it is it is really cold. I had to scrape my car windows this morning. Yeah, I don't have a with, scraper, so with I, a credit card <laughs> because I couldn't find the scraper, and my fingers are just like frozen. I'm like scrape, scrape. We have a anyway. lot. We have a lot to get into today, and so uh, I, before we get to all of it, I'm going to let you know several. Fun things, okay? First of all, follow us. Uh, you know, you should be listening to this. I don't know. One of There's so many ways now to listen. Uh, listen on the radio, TR Radio. Uh, you can also find us on iTunes, The Rob and Caleb Show. You can find us uh, now on my YouTube page. Uh, Caleb Hag is my YouTube page. You can find us. You can find a fan page now on Facebook. Go like us on Facebook. Uh, it's Facebook backslash, Facebook.com backslash Rob and Caleb Show. Yeah. And we have 101 likes, which is way more than the 36 that I thought we were going to top out at. So, uh, all right. Thank you, everyone. Um, you can email us, radio at com. I'm chegg at com. Rob Vanhoff is rvanhoff at com. Follow us on Twitter at Caleb Hegg at Rob Vanhoff. Okay, enough of that. Uh, one of the things that someone pointed out to me, or I don't know if this is true or not, but... Our good friend, Mr. Randall, said that we did not specifically say last week what the Mazora was. We talked about it the whole time, but we never flat out said what the Mazora was. Well, that's because it's a secret. <laughs> it's not we a secret. We can't tell everything. It's no. not, it is not a secret, and we will tell you, I'll tell you right now what it is. The Mazora is the actual marks that are put, the vowel marks that are put in uh, Hebrew texts that of the Torah that are and the Tanakh that are not in scrolls in the synagogue. So if you have a book of let's say the BHS Biblia Hebraica Stucardensia, which is a publication you can buy, when you open it up, there's going to be all these little dots. Those dots are the Mazora. There's not one standard Mazora. If you didn't tune in with us last week, you don't have no clue what I'm talking about. I'm sorry about that, but I want to clear this up for anyone who might be wondering. The Mazora are those dots. There were tons of different schools of Mazora. So the, probably not tons. Well, maybe if you put all the scholars in on the scale, maybe there there was okay a couple so, tons. But well, there was different. Here, schools. Here's another way to think of it: is that if you looked at medieval manuscripts, now not not Torah scrolls that were used in you know in a liturgy or like in in a synagogue service, but rather you look at printed not uh, manuscripts of Hebrew Bibles. 
from the medie- uh, medieval times. And then once the printing press was made and you look at early printed rabbinic Bibles, often you, there's going to be, like Caleb says, these vowel little points around the letters and little uh, notes in the margins, things like that. That is all constitutes what, what we say the Masoretic tradition. It is everything that has been transmitted with the consonants, but and, not the consonants themselves. So the consonants, all the letters of the Torah and the prophets and the writings are not Masorah. That is, that's uh, just tradition received as God's word. The Masorah is everything else that we'll find in printed editions, vowel pointing, notes in the margins, all these other things. All of that other stuff that's transmitted in printed text today is called Masorah. So I hope we cleared that up for everyone. And I'm sorry if we were not clear on that last week, but I wanted to clear that up. One of the things that has come up recently, and this is what we're going to spend our time on. And someone said that it took us too long to get to our topic last week. Well, you know what? If, uh, if, we, uh, if we don't do things the way you like it, then uh, I'm sorry. Get your own show. No, I'm playing. Ouch. I'm playing. We, we, no, we, yeah, we were pretty long-winded. Yes, we were uh, extremely week. long-winded. And to be honest, we cherish every single one of our listeners. We really do. We, we're so thankful that everybody's listening. So we want to mold our show, show the best we can towards our listening audience, all 36 of you. So let's cut to the chase. Let's ch- cut to the chase. Someone emailed me and actually... Several people now have emailed me, but the first person emailed me and said, can you please do a show on the Melchizedekian priesthood? And I thought, what in the world, why in the world would we do that? Like, what kind of controversy is that? But then more people started emailing and saying, please do a show on the Melchizedekian priesthood. And then someone sent me all these links to this guy and his book. And actually, the, one of the first things that I looked at our good friend, and I, I think he's listening right now because he said, I'm going to listen to this show if you do a show on it, which means he probably doesn't listen the rest of the time. So maybe we have 37 <laughs> listeners this time. Our good friend, my good friend, I call him a friend. I hope he calls me the same as David Wilbur. He works for Passion for Truth uh, out there with Staley. He, you know, he's got a good head on his shoulders. I really like uh, reading pretty much everything that uh, Wilbur puts out. He's a strong believer in the Lord, and he's no slouch when it comes to his research in biblical matters. This being said, he has written a uh, a whole exposition on this Melchizedekian priesthood theory, and it is called. It, it can be found on Facebook right now. It's called "Should We Only Keep the Commands Contained in the Quote Book of the Law uh, of the Covenant?" Sorry, in the Book of the Covenant, and not the ones contained in the Book of the Law. Now, that seems like an odd thing to say, okay? But here is what's going on. And I love it that they put a sponsored link to this book. There's this guy out there named Dr. I'm looking into this too because I can't believe it. Well, okay, I'll talk about that later. Dr. David Perry, okay? If you put that into a Google search, you're going to get this guy who has who's like a doctor, like a neurosurgeon or something. So you have to put in like, Dr. David Perry Melchizedek, then see what you find. He's written two books. Okay. The first book is Covenant of Promise. That's the one that I really looked into the most. That's where he builds this whole idea and this whole theology. And then the second one is called Back to Melchizedek, Back to the Melchizedek Future, I think it's called. Back to the, to the Melchizedek 
future. That's what it's called. You can find these books on Amazon. Let me tell you, well, let's first set up what this gentleman is saying. Then let's talk about his specific book. If you're watching on YouTube, I actually have three screens around me now. I've added a computer to this whole thing because that's what needed to happen today uh, <laughs> with, with this book. Um, let me give you the premise, okay? <laughs> you okay over there, Rob? <laughs> Sorry. No, you're fine. Uh, Rob does not have a, uh, <laughs> a cough button like I do. I got a cough button so I can go like this. And no one hears it. Okay, so anyway, here's what he's saying. What Dr. David Perry, I'm doing quote marks for anyone who can't, can't see it. What Dr. David Perry is saying is that God had this original plan. He set up a priesthood. It was the Melchizedek priesthood. I'm not positive about this. I've only read the first hundred or so pages of this book. And we're going to talk about that. It was, it was it, well, yeah. Um, the idea, I think what he's saying is that the Melchizedek priesthood is the original priesthood that basically every person who's part of the covenant is a priest. I'm pretty sure that's what he's saying. But what the main crux of his argument in this book is, is that there are there's actually the book of the covenant. The book of the covenant is Exodus 19.5 through Exodus 24.8. Let me say those verses again so you can write them down just in case you missed it. Exodus 19.5 through Exodus 24.8. What Perry is trying to argue is that the book of the covenant was the original covenant or law, if you want to put it that way, that was given to the people of God. Okay? That the Melchizedek priesthood was the priesthood of that covenant. Then what happened was in Exodus 24, what we have is we have this, uh, the golden calf incident. When the golden calf incident happened, God said, okay, they broke the covenant. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give them all this other stuff. I'm going to give them a new whole priesthood. Instead, everyone being priests under the order of Melchizedek. Now we're going to give them the Levitical priesthood. And instead of having this small amount of, of commandments that are not burdensome, what we're going to do is we're going to heap all these commandments on them so they could never possibly keep them. And I'm going to promise that the, that the Messiah will come. And when the Messiah comes, which he spells, by the way, Y-A-H-S-U-S-H-U-A. Um, when the Messiah, he spells it how? Y-A-H, he puts an H in there, S-H-U-A, Yahshua, he's a sacred namer. I got to write this out, so I got to see it. It's Y-A-H-S-H-U-A. Oh, so he's he's what we call... He's a sacred namer. Well, and he says not just that. It's someone who has, Hebrew has been mediated to them. That's right. Through English translations. Oh, we're so gonna, in other words, we're going to get to Doctor Perry's Hebrew yeah. here in just a so few this, seconds. This is don't a worry. person who's never learned Hebrew themselves, but they're. I mean, this this is the kind of thing they don't know Hebrew. What they know is, um, a little bit about, you know, enough to be dangerous, I guess. No, but, no, but no. Their use of Hebrew is mediated through other English translations, and then they just 
because it only works in English. You can only build names like this in English. Okay, so um, anyway, that's so so so. What Perry is saying here, Doctor David Perry is saying, is that once Yeshua died, he brought back the Melchizedekian priesthood. And what he's saying is that that passage in Hebrews that the old is passing away, talking about the priesthood, and the, and there's a new coming, is that what Yeshua is really doing is bringing back in the Melchizedek priesthood. And what he's doing is he's signaling that the new covenant is actually this this pa- this part of of the old co- or the original covenant, which is Exodus nineteen five through twenty four eight, and that we don't have to keep all these commands anymore. All these commands, kosher laws, all that kind of stuff, throw that out. Because all you really have to do is keep the commands that are held in between 19.5 and 24.8. What I see Perry trying to do, what, what this is an attempt to do, is tell us that we don't have to keep Torah. That's what he's doing. He's trying to say that we don't have to keep Torah. So let me re- can I re- reiterate back to you what I'm hearing you say? Because I haven't looked at this book. Yeah, go ahead. <clears throat> This person says, hey, notice here from Exodus 19.5. Yeah, and, and, and for, to, be, before you go on, the reason he chooses 19.5, because this is the passage where Israel says, everything you've said and, and, uh, and commanded us, we will do. So that he starts there. Okay, go ahead. Okay, so this is the premise that I'm hearing you describe. Exodus 19.5 through 24.8 is a special document called the Book of the Covenant. And it is the covenant for the Melchizedek priesthood, which is uh, the idea of a nation where every individual person is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. I think that's I think that's what he's saying is that every person is a is a priest. I could be wrong on that point, but the rest and of then, it I'm sure. And on. then after that, and then and that was what God set up, and that was God's plan. Yeah. yeah. And then after that, they. Uh, built the golden calf. Yeah. Therefore, God gave them a bunch of other stuff associated uh, that was not good to like, like punish them or uh, yeah, to, to screw them up. I don't know. And then and and then Yeshua came to do away with all that extra stuff. Yeah. To get us back to the book of the covenant. That's right. Okay. Well, I. I Okay, so, so strange. You know, strange. one of the things that reminds me of are those people who, uh, you know, there's people who break up the Torah into, they're called source critic, source critics or documentary hypothesis. It reminds they say me. like there's the holiness code in Leviticus, and they actually take sections of the Torah and they say this was written at this time and this section was written at a different time, and then later editors came and stitched all these together. You know what it reminds me of, Rob? Mormonism. <laughs> I'm not joking. It reminds me of Mormonism. Anyway, okay. This is the way that uh, our friend David Wilbur uh, summarizes this hypothesis. I've taken a very small chunk. Please, if you want to, go and read David Wilbur's uh, exposition on this. Uh, he says, when, uh, and he's speaking of this is how he sees them presenting their argument. Okay? And this is just one small little piece. He says, uh, they say when Messiah Yeshua died and was resurrected, the Melchizedek priesthood took the place of the Levitical priesthood. And therefore, the book of the law was removed and taken out of the way. This means that the followers of Yeshua today only need to keep the commands found in the book of the covenant because that was the original covenant to which God's people were called as Melchizedek priests 
before they uh, forfeited this calling, and God made the Levites priests instead and added the book of the law. God's commandments that are found in the book of the law, plus the entire Levitical priesthood, were only temporary until Yeshua came and replaced the Levitical priesthood with the Melchizedek priesthood. That's David. That's just a small piece of what David Wilbur has said oh. about. So, for example, and so the command to wear tzitzit, for example. No, that's part of the old one. Yeshua did away with that. That's not part of what this person, uh, DDP, Dr. DP, uh, sees. That's not part of the Book of the Covenant. That is, in other words, there's no command for tzitzit between Exodus 19.5 and 24.8. Yep, that's, get away, get get, get done with that. But Yeshua wore tzitzit because he was still under the what we call the book of the law, which is the rest of the stuff. Well, and he kept the, I, I'm assuming that, the, that he would say, well, he kept the book of the law perfectly. He was the right. only person who could ever keep the book of the law perfectly. And so he, and then he removed it, the book of the law. That's right. So, so were the early, there's a lot of questions, I guess. Uh, <laughs> would, are the early, the early followers of Yeshua, yeah. even his brother Yaakov, they, like for example, the Nazarite vow. We know that believers in Yeshua were keeping Nazarite vows way after his ascension, um, that's not part of this section of Scripture. So were they confused about that? Probably. And what I would what I think... So he's saying that those guys were confused? What like, I, so in other words, James, brother of Yeshua, was confused about that. <laughs> he didn't understand. He didn't discern it. And neither did Paul, <laughs> nor all this, those who were zealous for the Torah in Jerusalem that... Uh, okay, wait, hang on, just a sec, just a sec. Look, is that right? I mean, I yes, guess I think that's right because what basically what I see uh, Doctor Perry doing is trying to get away from what I would call the more difficult, quote unquote, difficult passages of Paul. That's what, he, and what does he do with circumcision? I and uh, to be uh, to be completely honest and and forthright, I have not read this whole book. Thank heavens, by the way, uh, I haven't read this whole book. So maybe he. So did, he if maybe we were he, gonna, let's just push this. Let's just it, let's just say, give him. Let's just say, okay, let's grant that there's this passage from Exodus nineteen five through twenty four eight called the book of the book of the covenant. Yes, it's a separate document than the rest of the Torah. Yeah, and this is our source for Torah. Okay, for belie- as believers in Yeshua, let's set aside the idea of Melchizedek priesthood for a second. Okay, and then we look at this and we see, oh, sure enough, there's feasts here. It even talks about six years that we sow the land, the seventh year, I'm in chapter 23 of Exodus. Yep. Seventh year, you let it rest. Fine. Talks about the Shabbat. Mm-hmm. It's three three times you keep a feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Yep. 2315 is where It doesn't at, say yeah. Passover, though. No. No. And then it says Feast of Harvest, First Fruit of the Labors. Well, we, we know that elsewhere, that that's Shavuot. But here, if this is all I have, I don't know that that's Pentecost or Shavuot. I don't know how to count to it. Yeah, I you wouldn't know, know when it is. Yeah, we wouldn't know when it was. Um, but we know in Acts chapter 2, they knew how to count to Shavuot, and that was after Yeshua ascended. Um, so the Feast of Ingathering, that's Sukkot, but we, don't, we wouldn't know that from here. So you take away, so we have unleavened bread. Mm-hmm. We have the, the seventh-day Shabbat. I wonder if he's lunar Shabbat or not. I don't know. Um, but we have the seventh-day Shabbat. We have... Six, you know, the seventh year rest, no jubilee year. Oh, it's interesting that you bring the jubilee year up. I'm going to talk about that here in a few minutes too. Uh, you wouldn't believe. Well, okay, keep going. 
<laughs> so I'm, I'm just trying to imagine, you know, if Wrap I were to your head around this, imagine Rob. that was the world I was in, you know, what that would be like, uh, you know, to think about it from that perspective. Look, okay, so I, let me let me get to some some of the nitty gritty of this. Okay, I, I know that a lot of people apparently I've had three people now email me and tell me that that a lot of people are going this way. A lot of people are buying into this. Okay, uh, what I did was I picked up this book called Covenant of Promise. By Dr. David Perry. Let me first tell you. Um, well, Wait, what's I'll, the name of the book again? It is called is the it Covenants covenant or the covenants? Co- covenants of Promise. Oh, yeah, okay, that's Ephesians. The Covenants of Promise. The Apostle Paul's understanding of scriptural grace and covenant salvation. Mm. Dr. David L. Perry, Th.D. Now it says, this is what it says. I'm going to give you a little rundown about this. Dr. David L. Perry, Th.D. of Yaw's Spirit of Truth Ministries, and I'm pretty sure that's his website too, graduated Doctor of Theology in 2008 from the Center for the Study of Biblical Research at the University of Redlands, California. I'm looking into that. I'm looking into it because I cannot believe that anybody would give this man a doctorate. Um, he has written a doctoral dissertation. Wait, what's the name of the school again? It's called the Redlands uh, uh, University of Redlands, California, which is no longer has any affiliation with. Uh, they don't even give out doctorates or anything that has to do with a th- with uh, with a THD anymore. Oh, he was written. He has written a di- uh, doctoral dissertation on the biblical proofs of distinctions between the covenants, biblical distinction from Levitical law. I, can, I why? How can you? How can you write a uh, doctoral dissertation on something that doesn't exist? Yeah, where do we learn about a Melchizedek priesthood in that passage, in the Book of the Covenant? Well, I don't think he's saying that we would throw away the rest of the Torah. What he's saying is, is that, that, that the laws don't apply. Hmm. Anyway, okay, so here's what I did. I started, I started reading a little bit of this book. Here are the first notes. First of all, let me say this. This book is what Dr. Perry has done for us, is he has given us an exposition. He has given us the groundbreaking work on horrible junk scholarship. This book is total trash. If you want to see how not to do scholarship, then open this book. Every single page that I have looked at has glaring theological mistakes. And not just theological mistakes in my own opinion. Okay, here's here's my first notes that I wrote down. Pardon me. Uh, Dr. Perry seems to have zero grasp on the Hebrew language, or Greek for that matter. He leans fully on Strong's. He uses Strong's as a lexicon, not as a reference tool or anything like that. He uses the Strong Concordance as his lexicon. For those of of you of our listeners who might not know what a lexicon is, it's a fancy word for a dictionary. He uses uh, a theological dictionary, that is, a a theological word for a dictionary. Uh, he uses Strong's as a dictionary, okay? He doesn't use it as a reference guide and then goes to something like Halote or something like that to, to learn more about the about why Strong's has listed this, you know, why the KJV has listed this. I'm also quite certain that Perry believes in KJV only because that's all he uses. He uses K- King James Version and he uses New King James Version. That's it. He didn't use any other translation that I have found in the 100 pages that I read in the past two two days. I've read 100 pages in the past two days. Unfortunately, it, I, I am I am quite confident that I am stupider now for reading that hundred pages 
than I was beforehand. That's how bad this book is. Okay, and I'm not just slamming it without cause. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna bring up some some examples. Okay, uh, he incorrectly spells the name of Yeshua, which I which he claims is because he is a sacred namer, which he calls himself on page 79. He admits to being a sacred namer. Okay. And, uh, well, actually, let's turn here to page 79. Give me a second while I get there. Let's see exactly what he calls himself. This is rich. Uh, now, what I did is what I call the Lou White Fossilized Customs Test. And actually, I'm thinking about getting an award here that I'm going to put on this wall right here for those who can see. We're going to print out whatever book has the award at the time. And this book gets the <laughs> first award. It's going to be the Lou White Fossilized Customs Award for BS. That is bad <laughs> scholarship. Because what we originally did when we got Lou White's Fossilized Customs book was we started reading it and we realized that there was so much that was wrong with it that we, we opened up to random pages. We chose four random pages to start with. And we started reading and we were looking to see if there was a glaring uh, mistake scholarly mistake on the random page that we chose. We started with four and it went from four. Then we went to eight. Now it's kind of the joke. We can open to any random page on Lou White's fossilized customs. And there is a scholarly blatant scholarly error. That's how bad the book is. So I decided, Hey, let's try the Lou White fossilized customs test on this book. To, to edit the What Are You Smoking Award. <laughs> the What Are You Smoking Award. That There you go. For those who might not know, Lou White owns a head shop. I, I'm, this is no joke. He owns a head shop. Or he did at one time. He still, he still owns it. It's still for sale. Oh. I, I check every once in a while. Okay. He's he's still trying to sell his, uh, his head shop there in uh, where? Louisiana? I don't know. Somewhere. Down by, uh, I don't know, the biggies. I don't know. Anyway. So... <laughs> Thank you, Rob. We'll call this the what it's are the ways the W A Y S the ways. What are you smoking? Award the ways <laughs> award. So this we're giving it now to Doctor Doctor David Perry on this book, Covenants of Promise, because I open this to random pages, and many, not just four, like fifteen <laughs> random pages on every single one. There was a glaring scholarly mistake. Page 29, Pentecost, the Greek, this is what he calls it, okay? He says, it's a Greek cover-up name for the covenant-commanded annual Sabbath feast of Shavuot. <laughs> a Greek cover-up name? That's what he calls it, a Greek cover-up name. <laughs> the co- then how does he, what was the word, Shavuot or Shavuot? Shavuot. He, oh. Nothing is in Hebrew, mind you. And everything, he always uses the uh, Strong's. The strong uh, numbers. Always. Okay, let's clarify. Because there's probably people out there who use Strong's numbers. And I use Strong's that. numbers. Don't get me wrong. I use Strong's numbers. The idea is we can't we, – we, it can't frame our thinking. Uh, you know, I mean, that, that's the important point. It, well, look, if you're using it as a lexicon, if you're using it as a dictionary, stop it. Don't do that. That's not what Strong's number was ever it's intended a for. There's yeah, a difference between a concordance and well, a not o- not only that. There's a great little pamphlet out there, and I have it on my desktop. I'm not going to look for it now. It's basically the uh, the the text that the King James version was 
based on or was translated from? Can we trust it? The answer is yes, we can trust it. But since the King James Version was published in 1611, there have been huge archaeological breakthroughs. We have things like the Dead Sea Scrolls now. We have tons of other evidence and tons of other things to look at that can that we can see uh, better translations from. So the King James Version, I'm sorry for, for all you people out there who might think that the King James Version is the, the book that we should be using and the translation we should be using and that somehow it's God-breathed, you're wrong. And all Strong's numbers is, is what, what Strong's did was Strong took the Hebrew word that, that was translated and, and saw how it was translated in the King James Version, gave it a number, and now you can say, okay, well, I think, you know, let's see what word this was. What well, was this number? And now you can go and see where they translated it the same way in every single right. other place in the King James Version. It's not a dictionary. It never was intended that way. So uh, it just for all of our listeners who are who have been with us for quite a while, you've heard us talk about this. This is a sheer mark of horrible junk scholarship. When someone uses the Strong's Concordance as a lexicon, it, it, it shows that they have never really studied. And so that's why it is questionable that this man even has a doctorate. Whoever gave it to him should have their doctorate-giving ability taken away because this man – this is junk scholarship at its best. Okay, let's get, so let's let me see what he calls himself here. He says a Greek cover-up word for the Feast of Pentecost or uh, Shavuot. Okay, uh, page thirty-five. Okay, he he not only pushes Hebrew primacy of the Synoptic Gospels, he downright says that that's what happened. He comes out and says that it wasn't Aramaic, it wasn't Greek that the Synoptic Gospels were originally written in Hebrew and that we have, and he essentially says that we have problems now in the, in the text because of that. Now, that's not unique. That view, there's, a, there's the, is it David Biven? Who's the guy? Yeah, the school of the, of Jeru- in Jerusalem uh, school uh, or whatever. Jerusalem, yeah, which they, which they this push. guy is a part of. This guy is a part of that, I think. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. That, so, yeah, there are people out there who have been teaching that for a long time. And I'm pretty sure he quotes Biven or someone. He says, uh, this is a quote from, let's see here. Uh, they deal with the events in the, this is, this is Perry writing right now. Okay. Listen to this. They deal with the events in Jerusalem and are recounted in Hebrew context. In Acts 15:36, there's a shift of Greek as Luke himself begins to describe Paul's missionary journeys. Okay. The, and then he quotes this, the uh, evidence of, uh, for Aramaic or Greek or origins of the synoptic gospels simply will not stand up under critical analysis. That's not true. There is far more substantial evidence indicating a Hebrew origin of the synoptic gospels. Also not true. As anyone can see, the problem, this is back to Perry. This is Perry writing now. As anyone can see, the problem is multifaceted with the main fa- facet originating in the Greek and that being accepted as the original Greek being bannered as the authoritative end all when it is actually the Greek that many times is poorly laboring to communicate the continuity, the continuity of the Hebrew covenant salvation economy originally entrusted to and conveyed through the Hebrew text. So in other words, let, let me other pro- word, that's like more, that's like a book of Mormon. It's like, well, I can't show you the gold texts. Yeah, I, exactly. I can't show you the original. Yeah, but, exactly. Uh, Once again, we come back me, to Mormonism. This is the tra- Trust me, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll interpret it for you. I can't show it to you. 
I, I, I can't show you the text. Why is this a glaring mistake? Because any scholar worth his salt, even the people at the, at the school of the Jerusalem uh, of the Synoptic Gospels, the Jerusalem School of the Synoptic Gospels, will tell you that it is their theory and their. Uh, I mean, they can't just come out and say, "Oh no, there's no evidence that it's it, a hypothesis." It's a hypothesis. Yeah. So, so what? And, and you know, it's the same thing in Andrew Gabriel Roth's uh, Peshitta that he's. Uh, peddling out there, Aramaic, English, New Testament. He says that Paul always spoke in Aramaic. So it's like these guys are both in different directions. One saying, oh, it was always Hebrew, and the Greek distorts it. Then you have other people saying, oh, it was Aramaic, and the Greek distorts it. Um, and I just, I'd like to talk to someone who really takes this seriously, you know. Hey, now, I know I- that there are language guys in the Jerusalem school uh, that have worked to try to push... And to be yes. honest with you, but the I'm, book that I would recommend our listeners to is back to that one. Is it James Edwards, or what's the one? The Hebrew Gospel Tradition. Oh man, that's such a good. book. We've talked about it before. That's that's the book you want to read to to clear your brain about the issues. Okay, so he takes Strong's numbers on page thirty eight. This is back to Perry. He takes Strong's numbers uh, to say that Ecclesia is wrongly translated. Okay. And that it's that the true meaning is the called out ones. So he's saying that ecclesia d- doesn't mean assembly. <laughs> uh, ecclesia is the Greek word commonly translated as church or assembly. He doesn't say assembly or assembly. He just says church. Ecclesia is explored from the Strong's is as follows, and then he gives you then he copies and pastes literally copies and pastes the Strong's numbers uh, definition in here. As it, as it is plain to see, even from the Greek. Okay, now where he didn't look at any of the Greek. All he looked at was the Strong's numbers. Ecclesia most commonly means the called out ones. Okay, so if Ecclesia in Greek means the called together assembly or something like that. No, he doesn't say that. He says, quote, why is he, called why out ones. Called out ones. Well, there is... I I'm not saying... Why he might I, I'm not it. saying... The point that, is, why is he even... Ex, why is he even expounding on a Greek text if he says it's wrong? In the Hebrew, in Hebrew, that that same group would be called the Kohanim Kodesh, meaning the holy set apart priesthood. <laughs> wait a minute. In other wait words, wait, hang on. He goes on. In other words, that member body that has been called out by reason of urged covenant commandment keeping, this harkens back to the most notable event this side of creation before the time of the Messiah. Mount Sinai, when yod heh vav whether in person or in proxy, Yahashua or Yeshua, however he spells it, actually came to earth and audibly spoke to the hearing of all present initiating the given of the Book of the Covenant. Okay, so, and he says that's a Kohanim Kodesh? What does he say there? Yeah, Kohanim Kodesh. Okay, that's not Kadosh, I'm sorry, Ko- Kadosh. Kohanim Kadosh. Kohanim Kadosh. That's not even Hebrew. I mean, you've got two Hebrew words, but you can't. You don't just take two Hebrew. You either have to put them in construct state, the first one in a construct, Kohane something, or Kadosh has to be an adjective that matches in number and gender. I mean, the guy doesn't have some of the basic uh, understanding. The- and where do we learn that the ecclesia is this? We have the ecclesia is used... I, I'm just confused. Let me, let, let me let me say this to, to all of our listeners. We, uh, Rob and I were in a rush to get this show done. Okay, so Rob and I haven't if you talked. Can't tell. If you can't tell, we <laughs> we we were in a rush. I read this book as quick as possible. Read a hundred pages of it. Sent a link to Rob. He didn't even have time to look at it. 
Okay. Uh, we haven't even talked about this. So Rob does it. Rob's going in completely blind on this. My favorite one is coming up, Rob. Okay. You are really going to enjoy this one. But before we get to that, okay, he says on page 41, the first day of worship is the calf is a Catholic tradition. The first day worship meeting on Sunday is a Catholic tradition. This shows an absolute lack of understanding of church history at all. It's not a Catholic tradition. The Catholic Church went around until the 6th century, at least. We know that the, that the Christians, quote-unquote Christians, and even the people of the way were meeting on the, the first day of the week. And it's, prob- it's, it's probable that this was because a lot of them were, were Gentiles who were actually having to work on the Shabbat, unfortunately. Anyway, not the point. So another glaring mistake. Okay, are you ready for this? This is, I think this is my favorite. This is my favorite one so far. I, in my notes, at the end of this, I actually put laugh out loud with about eight exclamation points. <laughs> this is good. Let me get to the page. Page 83. Here you go. He tries to use Strong's numbers to show why some translations would translate Torah as instruction. Okay? Which is funny because Torah means instruction. Let's get, I, I'm going to, I'm going to quote this exactly because I want you to hear this. Okay. This is what he says. Okay. In our Western non-Hebrew mindset, this is Perry now in our Western non-Hebrew mindset to only understand Torah as law as proper, as properly accepted supreme, supremely is a most unfortunate conveyed definitional concept for most correctly Torah defined seems defined seems to mean the successive light of teaching and instruction. Did you get successive, that? Successive light? Uh, yeah. Let me, let, me expl- let me read this part again. For most correctly, Torah defined seems to mean the successive, now we're in quotes, successive light of teaching and instruction, end quote. Hmm. It is of interest that there are some modern Bible versions that have actually opted to translate the translation choice from that of the book of the law to the book of the instruction. Now, I want you to catch this. This is born out in the Hebrew root words that make up the word Torah. Oh, yeah. He's, he says now, he's taking... Now we're going to go to Strong's numbers, of course. Okay. Right. Tor, 8446 a succession, i.e. string or abstract order or border or row. Or, and he gives two different numbers here, meaning light, of course, illumination or luminary, okay? And then yara, meaning a primitive root properly to flow as water. This is where he gets that translation from. Please notice that while the Torah implications and purpose of law is somewhat implied, neither the definition of or as law, nor the word law, nor for that matter, the word covenant appear. (coughs) So for anyone who's missed this, so maybe we're rambling about things that people don't want to hear about, but I want you to catch very clearly what this man has done was taken, has taken the Hebrew word Torah and has broken it up into three different words. He's now gone into Strong's Numbers and looked up, not in a lexicon, not in a dictionary, but in Strong's Numbers, what these three separate words that he's now ripped this one word apart into might mean. Then from that, he gets this uh, this 
string of words that he now says is what Torah actually means. Successive light of teaching and instruction. The reason, by the way, that these other translations translate it book of the instruction instead of book of the law is because that's what Torah means. Torah means instruction. It can also mean law. Am I wrong on that, Rob? No, no. He's, he's doing what we call a, a midrash. A midrash. A midrash is where you take something and you kind of do some word picture association and other kinds of things to make connections between things that really inherently are not connected um, to try to get some material for teaching to tell somebody. You know, that's what, that's what midrash is. He's making that up. Yeah, um, He's exactly. inventing that uh, definition. Okay, so uh, the last one. Uh, here's the last one. And I'm going to tell you why I'm, why I'm going through all these with, with our listeners. I'm going to tell you that at the end of this. Okay, This is quite a long, long little uh, excerpt, but I'm going to read this because I want you to get a sense of this. Again, in a real sense, this is, of course, Perry again, page 93 into 94. Again, in a real sense, we owe Orthodox Judaism a huge debt of thanks for even keeping Torah alive. But as stated, they have kept much more alive than just Torah. Coupled with an extended embracement, uh, embracements of orthodoxy, there are those on the messianic side of Judaism that while also embracing the New Testament, many times take a defensive posture, or at the very least, a very dim view of those even asking questions that would, be, would table discussion concerning these considerations, especially to an issues, to an issues contrary. Specifically, should it cast a valid doubt in the direction of and or the obedient affirmation to the obedient ex- execution of these 613 laws while being defensive or other traditions and issues as well, which is a puzzlement or not so puzzling when you consider and become aware of the conflicting applications of what they, Messianic Judaism, follow, following Orthodox Judaism, actually do. For instance, Rosh Hashanah is said to be and observed as the Jewish New Year. This means that by default, they have effectively taught or at the very least allowed the whole world to assume that the Jewish, thus yod Vavhe's biblical new year starts in the autumn part of the year in no less than the month that yod Vavhe himself calls and designates as the seventh month. Leviticus 23, 23-25. This post-Babylonian captivity second temple period tradition is excused as being the Jewish civil new year or head of the year. This post-Babylonian tradition is in total contradiction of the Torah and the 613 laws. They, the Messianic and Orthodox alike, attest to, uh, attest to affirm, uh, uh, oh, sorry, they attest to affirm. Torah in Exodus 12 states clearly that the spring month, which Yotevavhe called Aviv, uh, meaning green ears containing the observance of the Passover on the 14th, is to be the beginning of the year. This shows an absolute lack of understanding and neglect of Torah itself. Yeah, he's not, he's not, this is what we call unjust weights and measures. Yeah. Unjust, because he's not, he's not allowing the rabbinic material that he's looking at to fully explain. He's taking a little bit and running with it. So for those of you who might not know, and before uh, I get to anything else about Perry, uh, let's explain this real quick. For those of you who might not know, the first month of the year, is the uh, of the Jewish calendar is the year that pa- is the month that Passover is in Nisan, okay. 
The seventh month is the month that Rosh Hashanah is in, or Yom Teruah. Okay, Rosh Hashanah does mean head of the year. Why would the Jews, the Jewish people, call Yom Teruah, the day of trumpets, Rosh Hashanah? Does anyone, can anyone tell me? Well, the reason why is because the Jubilee, as stated in uh, Leviticus 25, states that we'll start counting the Jubilee year in the, on the seventh month, uh, on the tenth day of the seventh month, which is what? Yom Teruah. So, granted, the rabbis actually have come up with several different New Years. There's a New Year's. There, there's a New Year for uh, tree-grown fruit. Uh, there's a New Year for uh, what else? There's a um, New Year for the calendar. But also, we got to remember that this is also coming into a, a year, just like in the. We think of the school year. Yeah. You know, in America, we think the school year begins in September. That's right. It's it's a it's just recognizing different kinds of cycles, and in Israel, it has to do with the rainy season. Um, that judgment, God's judgment pertaining to whether or not Israel's going to have water through the enough water for their agricultural cycle is a really a big concern for those in Israel who work the land and in an agriculturally based economy. They needed the rainy season, and that's why you know all the fall feasts wrap up with. You know, the, the idea of water is woven into Sukkot at the end of Sukkot. And so it's a, I think he's being unfair. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that the rabbis didn't add things. That's, I'm not, I'm not no, of course saying not. at that point. I'm saying that I think he's, I think he's misrepresenting. I don't think, no, He's no. building a straw man and it's, it's not. Rob, it's not you're pre- giving him more credit than I would. I don't think he understands. I don't think he gets it. I don't think he understands why the Jews have, have called that Rosh Hashanah. He just simply thinks that they they decided that that's the new year. Yeah, that's right. So it's unju- he's not using just weights and measures. He's not using a brain is what he's not using. The, the, well, I mean, come on. Here's the whole point of this. In the, in the very beginning of the book, he starts by saying, oh, I, you know, if you're going to study this book, open your mind and be, be prepared to study the Bible like you've never studied before. Get out your concordance. Get out your Bible. Get out whatever text you need and, and prepare yourself for long study like, and get, getting deep in the word like you've never studied before because people have missed it completely. And I want you to open your mind to, to this new concept. When people have to say that in, in the beginning of their book before, you, before they start writing – Chances are that they're going to feed you a load of, of junk. And that's exactly what he's done. Not even getting to the idea that the Torah is contained within Exodus uh, 19.5 through 24, whatever. Uh, or that the, that the covenant laws. Not even getting to that. Before he even sets that up, people should look at this book and say, this is total garbage. Anyone who would write that, anyone who would use such horrific scholarship should not be listened to in any way, shape, or form. So if you're listening to this and you've bought into this, stop it. This is nonsense. Not only is it nonsense, but whoever gave this guy a doctorate, come on. New award, folks. Ladies and gentlemen, David Perry has done one thing, and he has now gained an award for his book. The award, the award is the Lou White Fossilized Customs Bad Scholarship Award. This book goes down in history as probably one of the worst books I've ever read. 
I'm not joking. I and to be quite <laughs> frank, it really upsets me. If you can't tell, I'm upset. I'm upset because I can't believe that anybody would buy into this. It doesn't take one more than one page. Start reading one page of this book. How do people not realize that this is just junk? It's total nonsense. And it's sad that people are being brought into this. Hey, if anybody wants to tell Perry that we're talking about him on this show, please play this for him. Perry, if you're listening to this, David Perry, if you're listening to this, stop writing. You have no business doing anything scholarly. And it's proven from this book. Ugh. Okay, I'm done. I'm done on my soapbox. Uh, anything else to add, Rob? Well, I just I, I think that uh, you know, given my scant knowledge of of the book, you know, I just it it concerns me when someone starts doing that that source critical view like this. Uh, this you know random passage from nineteen five to twenty four eight. Say, saying that is a, a set apart covenant and everything around it, um, you know, falls away. You know, circumcision was one of those commandments that we mentioned earlier. It says, we learned from Exodus 12. Now, maybe his argument would be, well, that's not part of the book of the covenant. But Exodus 12, uh, that anyone who is not uh, circumcision, you know, uh, who had received the circumcision passed down from Abraham would not be able to participate in the in the Passover meal. Um, so we're in a conflict here, and of course, I don't know what his book says, but I don't even think it, the word Passover is mentioned in this book of covenant that he's talking about. It does say the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when I brought you out of Egypt. That's it. But if we're, if we're going to say, okay, well, we'll learn elsewhere where it's called Passover. Well, we also learn elsewhere that circumcision was a requirement. Um, for participation in that uh, Passover sacrifice. Well, uh, you know, and, and these so are... So maybe he'll say that, well, there's, since there's no Passover sacrifice today, therefore circumcision is done away also. Maybe that's his, his argument. Well, and back to Wilbur, David Wilbur, who is, uh, you know, once again has... has uh, if you really want some good reasons why the idea that, that this whole Book of the Covenant thing is nonsense, uh, go to Wilbur. Uh, Wilbur makes these cases, then he backs up every single one of these and talks about them in his interaction with Perry. Uh, he says, the Bible never makes a clear distinction between the book of the covenant and the book of the law. In fact, sometimes the two, two titles are used synonymously. That's a good point. His second point, the priesthood was given to Aaron and, and his sons before the golden calf incident. <laughs> yeah, that's, here, here's another, another thing. Yeah, and the whole tabernacle, the instructions for the tabernacle. Here's uh, an important thing. Well, two two side notes. Hopefully, I can remember them. One is Yeshua does teach us to be discerning, but he teaches us to discern between the Word of God and the traditions of men. Right? That's where Yeshua teaches us to to think in those categories, so that we're all, we're that you know we need to be able to evaluate things against the Word of God. That's where Yeshua teaches us, and Paul uh, makes that clear also elsewhere in his letters. The other point is, um, has to do with this idea that God had a plan and then he changes mind and then he tries something else because that doesn't work. And then that doesn't work. And then he's going to try something else. That's not the view back to this idea of covenants of promise that there is one plan. This is my, my belief. Like Caleb, I think you and I share this, that God had a plan from the beginning. That's right. It's, it's not that the Levitical priesthood, that God 
uh, or that he set up Israel as a Melchizedek priesthood. We have there's just nothing in the Torah that teaches that. We, we're we're taught of one person named Melchizedek, and then in Hebrews seven we're told that that was a uh, that Yeshua now is the priest after the order of Melchizedek, right? Who was a type of of Yeshua who was to come, and that's what Psalm one ten is about, and that 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 was always the plan, and that the pattern shown to Moses in the mountain, which was that how to build the tabernacle, was to teach the people about a heavenly reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what you and, have in Hebrews going on, and, too. And, and they even say that if Yeshua was on earth, he would not have been a priest because the Torah prescribes men from the tribe of Levi who paid tithes through when they were, you know, Levi was still considered in Abraham paying a tithe to Melchizedek and how great Melchizedek must have been. It's nothing about a priesthood that, that was of Melchizedek that was passed on to Israel and then Levi took it over or, or it fell down. There's... There's nothing like that. He's adding a lot of background story to try to connect dots and fill in gaps where there's no need to. And maybe maybe you're right. What Some of what you're saying, Caleb, is that he's it helps him make sense of other scriptures that he can't make sense of. In other words, so he's built a hypothesis. He's built a, he has a hypothesis, but then he's going around teaching this hypothesis as if it's just the truth. Um, and it's the same thing with kind of the Lunar Sabbath people, you know, they have this hypothesis that um, the Sabbath is reckoned by the month, the new moon day is not reckoned as part of the weeks, and therefore part of the hypothesis is that somewhere after Yeshua's time, after the early apostles that were keeping Shabbat, somewhere there was a collective amnesia where everybody bumped into this new system. And that it's a that's their hypothesis. And if you accept them, if you accept those basic tenets, then their perspective seems, oh yeah, okay, that makes sense. But you have to question each of their found things that they're founding it on to see whether it's built on rock or sand. Uh, yeah. Maybe maybe that's the it's the sand award. The sand award. Sand award. We're gonna. Built, I'm, yeah. I'm gonna figure it out. I'm gonna get a ribbon for it. I am. I'm gonna get a ribbon for it. I'm gonna and I'm, we're gonna post it here on the show. We'll have the uh, we, and and maybe there will be another book that will come along that will uh, dethrone Perry's book. But for now. This book is going to get the award. And uh, so I would say, please, save your money. Don't get duped. He has this other one on the Melchizedek uh, future. for uh, Save your $15.95 plus shipping. Uh, it's, it's not, not only is it not worth it, it is literally, I, to be honest with you, I couldn't figure out if the guy was serious. It, it's that bad. It, it is that bad. I thought he might be joking half the time. He's being facetious because the scholarship is really that bad. Uh, but if you want to learn more about why this would be such a horror, I mean, Wilbur just knocks it out of the park. God says that we are blessed when we keep the, his commandments contained in the book of the law. That would go against, I mean, it, it, it's just nonstop. Anyway, I hope that one of the things that we've done, and maybe you think that I'm being unjust. Maybe you think I'm being, maybe you think I'm being mean. Maybe you think I'm I'm t- going too hard against this guy David Perry. I've never met David Perry. I can't I can't speak about what his you know uh, the guy personally. All I can say is that the book is absolute trash. It is. That's what I can say, and that there the scholarship in the book is non-existent. There is no scholarship going on, and whoever gave Perry a PhD 
if he really has one, which is questionable in my mind. It really is. I, well, it was strange that you can't find – you can't go and look at, like, the who is the director of the program, what the curriculum is, that the school – you know, it kind of mysteriously disappeared. Well, you know, maybe I shouldn't question it. But honestly, after reading some of the, this guy's work, quote-unquote work, I cannot imagine that anyone would give this guy a Ph.D., the guy can't even speak Hebrew or read any Hebrew. He has to he has to use Strong's as, as a uh, lexicon, and and he has a PhD in theology. What? Come on! I mean, I know that a lot of seminaries out there are taking away uh, the the language courses, the Hebrew and Greek, and making them optional. And that's that's new. Even back in two thousand eight, I don't think they were doing that. But to say that you you could get a PhD without ever studying Hebrew, nonsense. It, it makes little sense to me at all. Anyway, all right, hey, uh, you know our our listeners got upset when we went to Rainbows and Kittens. Well, you don't got that anymore, do you? No, you don't. No, it's just so just so listeners know if you see someone out there making bold claims. Especially here, you know, he Caleb shared some link or some passages where he's making bold claims about the Hebrew tradition and Hebrew thinking, and we need to learn to Hebrew thinking. But then his Hebrew thinking consists of words, Hebrew words that were transliterated into English for him, and then he's building teaching off those transliterations, like Kohanim Kadosh or whatever. I mean, it, it's nonsense in Hebrew, or or taking making a name like. Uh, Yahshua, as if because Yah is a name for uh, our Heavenly Father, you know, Yah, and then putting Shua instead of Yeshua. I mean, things like that are, that they don't, they can only do that in English. You can't do that in Hebrew. That's not Hebrew thinking. That's, that's English uh, reorganizing of Hebrew transliterated words. That's not Hebraic thinking. It's so, bad scholarship. Yeah, and so we need to be to try to help people be clear on the difference. Don't be deceived if, you know, some just because somebody looks like they're they're using Hebrew words does not mean they know what the heck they're talking about. I think that this proves, you know, a lot of people have said to me, "Oh, who cares, you know, like Michael Brown just because he has his doctorate or, you know, whatever, you know, this person just because they have their doctorate you like him." No. I think that uh, we have proven on this show that just because somebody has PhD or you know a, a doctor in front of their name does not mean that we agree with them. Uh, this is ridiculous. It's it's sad, honestly. It's very sad. We're heading down to San Diego tomorrow, uh, and actually, when you hear this, when you watch or hear this, that will be three days ago. We leave on Tuesday. So this will air on Thursday. We're recording on Monday because, which is very early for us. Normally we record on Wednesday or uh, yeah, usually on Wednesday. So uh, we're recording this very early and we're doing that because we're heading down to San Diego. We're heading down to San Diego for the Evangelical Theological Society and the Society of Biblical Literature's annual meetings. So if you uh, like to pray for people, please pray for us while we're down there. We're going to be interviewing some nice people for Torah Resource Radio and uh, hopefully we're going to have more <laughs> more interviews than we've set up. And next week, we're going to have a very special treat for you. We're going to come, uh, we're going to record, well, not live. We're going to record from our hotel room in in San Diego. 
And so uh, hopefully we'll clean up a little bit. Four guys in one hotel room can get a little messy. (laughs) (laughs) But we're going to record uh, from our hotel room in or maybe a restaurant, who knows, in San Diego. We're going to talk about the ETS and SBL meetings, some of the connections we've made and some of the fun stuff that we've learned and uh, seen down in San Diego at these wonderful annual meetings that we go to. So join us then. We're going to bring on uh, uh, Tim Haig, my father, and also Gary Springer who is our student administrator here and one of our teachers at Torah Resource Institute. Okay, so if uh, you have heard anything that you like or dislike, go ahead and send us an email, radiotorahresource.com. And once again, save your money. Don't go out and buy Dr. Perry's books. They are absolute garbage. Uh, We're going to give them an award here probably in two weeks on this show. And quite frankly, I think that uh, Perry, David Perry, has not honored. In fact, I think he has dishonored the name of our great God and King, Yeshua, the Messiah.